Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Hey, wait a minute. What's the name of your church? Real life Christian church. Real life. Get real with another edition of Think About It. Real life messages from Pastor Dennis Rasper from Real Life Christian Church. And now, let's listen to the message from Pastor Rasper. This is the fifth in a series called Subtle Deception. And today we look at part five, this lie, that there's many ways to heaven. Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. There's many ways. Jesus is a way, but he's not the way. And I have mixed emotions when I hear that lie because I hear people who like to think they're believers say that. You know what they say? People say this. They say, well, my way happens to be Jesus, but your way, Allah, Buddha, whatever, you know, that's okay too. I mean, we live in a free culture. That's okay. Your way is just because mine. And you know, that, that, that takes me back to Isaiah 48, 6, because God says in Isaiah 48, 6, my glory will I not give to another. And when you say, well, I happen to choose Jesus, but your way is good too. What are you doing? You're giving God's glory to another. And you can't tell me that you love Jesus and are devoted to him if you're willing to give away his glory to another. You don't love Jesus if you say, my way is, happens to be Jesus, but your way is just as good. You know, I get agitated inside because that, that, that diminishes Jesus in people's minds, this lie that he's a way, but not the only way. Because I'll tell you, folks, he's my everything. He gives everything for me so that I can have real life, not superficial life. I, I, I once knew the principal of Rochester High School, and the Board of Education was pressuring this guy to um, find someone who would teach a class on Islam. And he told me that only 1% of the student body at Rochester High School was, was of, of Mideastern descent. And, and, and much less than that, Islamic, of the Islamic religion. And half the school at least professes, he said, that, they, that they're Christians. And he says, I can't teach Christianity, but they want me to get and pay a full-time salary and benefits to, to, for, for someone who's going to teach Islam to less than 1% of his student body. See, the lie is um, any world religion, any God is a legitimate way to heaven. It's not the purpose of this message to define the other world religions. That would take a long time, but maybe just a little insight. Like Islam is the greatest threat to our national security, bar none. It's the greatest threat to the world today. They believe in a god, small g, called Allah, and Allah was the moon god. I believe he was the Turkish moon god. And who made Allah god? I mean, who made the Turkish moon? Who picked the Turkish moon god, Allah, and said, okay, you're god? Who did that? Well, a guy named Muhammad. In his book that has become the um, Bible of sorts for Islamic people called the Quran, Q-U-R-A-N, and Allah is arbitrary. There's no certain hope of eternal life in Islam, unless, of course, you die as a martyr, and Muhammad himself was a militant. You want to belong to a religion like that? Or Buddha? You know, a lot of people think Buddha's a god. Buddha isn't even a god. Some people have elevated Buddha to that, but, but, but Buddha is the prophet. Gautama Buddha is the prophet of Buddhism. But the god of Buddhism is some nebulous, nebulous, ethereal state called nirvana. And there's 10 steps to nirvana. They're all meditative. And, and once you achieve nirvana, you get the ultimate in being, whatever that is. But I think that's what you're after, is this ultimate in being. So the god of Buddhism isn't even a person. And Hinduism has hundreds of gods, trinkets, animals. They worship cows. They worship rats. And I think about this and said, how would you like your god to be a rat? 
Wouldn't that be something? How would you like to your God to be a rat? And I say to myself, God didn't make me a Hindu. And there's millions of Hindus in India and all over the Middle all over the eastern part of the country, all the world. But, but, but God, God made me a Christian. And he called me to be his own. And my God is not a rat. My God is a true God. I just think about stuff like that. I mean, you think about Judaism. I mean, Judaism accepts the Old Testament, not the New, and so they reject Jesus Christ. I think about Shinto. Shinto is so big in Japan, all over China. It's so big, and they have no God. It's only a philosophy. I think about Confucianism, which is big on mainland China. So they've taken a sinful man, Confucius. We used to have these Confucius say jokes, and they've elevated him to a deity. And these are all, not just in our culture, but in the thinking of the world, their ways to heaven. Except any of these quote-unquote gods, of which Jesus, by the way, is the least, and you will go to heaven or exist somewhere forever. That's nebulous too to most religions. See, it's defined for us. Now, this is what we have to know, man. Here's what distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions and makes ours the right one. And these are just some of the essentials. I mean, there's a lot more, but, but first, the Bible teaches that God, the God we worship, the one true God, forgives our sins. Sin created a debt. And so what did God the Father do? He sent his own son who died to pay off that debt. And now when you, when, now when you as a believer come to the Father pleading, pleading the death and the merits of Jesus Christ, your every sin is forgiven. You get, you get peace. You get a reason to live your life without fear and retribution. And that is a big thing because these other world religions fear their gods. They're afraid of divine retribution. They're afraid my God is somehow going to get me. And you know what they do? Some of these religions offer their children as sacrifices. They offer their kids as sacrifices to appease the wrath of their gods. So other religions are afraid of their gods. But we're not afraid of our God our God is a God of infinite love and mercy who forgives our sins and set his son for us. Do you ever thank God? You're, I mean, you're praying and you're thanking God for this. You're thanking God for food and clothing and safekeeping and all that stuff. Do you ever thank God that he called you to be his own? Ever thank God that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that he began that work in your heart and worked that work in your heart? What else makes Christianity different? The Bible tells us salvation is a gift of God's grace. You don't have to earn it. And Christian, Listen, that, that probably more than anything else, that, that differentiates Christianity. It's a gift of God's grace. You don't have to earn it. Christianity is the only religion that teaches that. Can you imagine how horrible it would be to be an Islamic person or a Buddhist or a Hindu and wonder, did I do enough today? Did I do enough? Was I good enough to earn my salvation? And you, and you constantly live with that gnawing fear. Did I do enough? Man, thank you, my Lord God, that you worked in me to believe in you. And if there's anybody here who's bought into that lie that Jesus Christ is just one of many ways and all these other gods are ways, you know, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of wondering did I do enough? Did I do enough to earn my salvation? Every other religion is a religion of works and that breeds fear except Christianity. So what else distinguishes Christianity? Our God didn't stay in some ivory tower. This is a biggie too. But he lived among his own creation. He lived among people. We say it like this. He got his hands dirty and his feet and his whole body. He got dirty living among people. He laid his hands on lepers, etc., etc. He died and then he rose from the dead, which Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius or even Moses never did. See, our God lives. Our God lives in our lives every day. And last, we have a book, we have a Bible that supports all this. And that Bible has been challenged and never, ever, ever been proven wrong.
And so that's who we are as Christians. There's so much more. But the lie is, you know, Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. Every, you know, everybody's religion is valid. And the truth is in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then this really great passage in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we much must be saved. There is no other name except the name of Jesus given among men, whereby we must be saved. See, the lie of devils, is so, it's so subtle. I mean, you think, well, everybody has rights or freedoms. That's how Satan wants you to think. I mean, the Constitution guarantees our freedom of speech, which includes the right to believe what you choose to believe. And that's okay, that's cool, that's great. But to say your way of salvation is wrong and my way is right, just because the Bible says that very thing, is stepping on people's freedom of thought. And so the larger lie that we're dealing with here is this, the lie of tolerance. We're getting to a point, Josh McDowell wrote this in his book, The New Tolerance. We're getting to the point where the greatest good is to tolerate, to tolerate. And to tolerate means when you accept a person, you accept. This is the new definition of tolerance. When you accept a person, you accept the whole package. You accept his or her belief system. You accept his or her lifestyle. See, and that's the greatest good. That's the highest good to tolerate. And the highest evil, of course, is to be intolerant. And that's why we have more and more hate crime laws. Again, tolerant used, tolerance used to mean, I mean, this is the dictionary definition. This is what tolerance did mean at one time. I accept you as a person. I can love you, but I don't have to accept your beliefs and your lifestyle. But I can still love you and serve you and be in your life. Today, you accept me as a person, man, you get the whole package, you accept my lifestyle, you accept my beliefs, and don't tell me I'm wrong. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 talks about the rapture of the church. Jesus will come again and take all believers to heaven, and the rest will be left behind. And a world government's going to be just about in place. And what's going to happen when all these people are taken, all these believing people are taken out of here? What's going to happen? Well, they're going to have to come up with some explanations, right? And one part of their explanation is going to be this, good riddance. We won't miss those intolerant folks who always tried to make us feel guilty. Hey, we're, I don't know how they left, but we're glad they're gone. We're just glad they're gone. Good riddance to these people, these intolerant people. See, the lie is that Jesus Christ is just one way. Everybody's way is right. And the bigger lie is, this is the bigger lie, tolerance is the highest good and intolerance is the highest evil or the greatest evil. And the world of demons has lots of people believing that. Most of the world believes this. And I would venture to say some people here have embraced that lie too, that Jesus Christ is just a way to heaven and everybody's way is good, see? The devil's lies are very subtle. They're always believable. And folks, they're always meant to bring you down and bring others down with you as you believe in these, as you believe these lies. The apostle Paul felt like, like I did. I said, I get very grieved and I get very agitated when I hear this lie that Jesus Christ is just a way and not the only way. And people get agitated with me when we say what I say, he's the only way. In Acts chapter 6, 17, Acts chapter 17, verse 16, Paul the Apostle is in Athens, Greece, which is the heart of pagan culture then. Athens is the heart of pagan culture, and he's alone, and Paul's waiting for his ministry team walking up and down the streets of Athens. And he sees, well, I'll read it to you in Acts chapter 17, 16, while Paul was waiting in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And man, do I relate to that, because I get greatly distressed at that too. And so Paul goes into Jewish synagogues, 
and he reasons with them, it goes on to say, he worms his way into philosophical discussion groups, and he talks about a Jesus who died, but what caught their interest is this, he talked about this, this he's, he, he, he's alive, he's risen again thing, and that, 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 that gripped their interest. If you look at Acts chapter 16, verse 17, it says in parentheses, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now, you might call these folks pseudo-intellectuals, and maybe they were, but in Athens, Greece at that time, they had this think tank group called the Areopagus. So these people were the most respected thinkers of the world. And so Paul's there talking about the death and resurrection of this Jesus. And these think tank people, these great thinkers, these, these members of the Areopagus, this, this elite group, they say, Paul, will you come and address our group? Because he's the new kid on the block, man. He's got this new theology, this new philosophy. And so Paul's standing there on a place called Mars Hill, a theater on Mars Hill in front of this elite think group called the Areopagus, and, and what Paul says is absolutely brilliant. In verse 22 of Acts chapter 17, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. This God that's unknown, hey, hey, folks, I know him, and I want to tell you about him. Listen to this. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands like your God. See, <laughs> he doesn't live in temples. He's not confined to a temple. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself, listen to this. He's saying this to this elite think tank group because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. So God's the creator. And he determined, here's his sovereignty. He determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this. And here's his outreach so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. That was a brilliant presentation. And here's what turns me on about this story. Paul met these people right where they were. He did not beat these folks over the head and say, you're a bunch of loonies because you got all these temples and worship all these stupid gods. He didn't say that. He went into there, he, he, he went before this elite group, the Areopagus, he went on Mars Hill and he addressed these people and he met them right where they were, right where they are. Well, he was clearly intolerant. He was clearly intolerant, but he was intolerant in the right way, and that's exactly how Jesus was. And so now we need to address this issue of, of in this age of tolerance, where the, the, the new definition of tolerance says you need to accept everybody, the whole package. What does it mean to accept people? How far does it go? And you look at uh, the fact that God places us among people. Families work all kinds of groups. Well, true or false, there are perfect people. See, true or false? Of course that's false. I look at Ephesians 6, 7. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this. I'm just paraphrasing now. He says, you have a boss. Paul says, serve that boss, and I'm quoting wholeheartedly. Serve that boss wholeheartedly. Paul's saying, no, he or she is not perfect. But at that place of employment, you give 200%. And now I'm quoting, as if you were working for the Lord. See, so, so what's he saying is this, what the word of God is saying is we serve, we are called to serve imperfect people. 
We're called to serve in perfect people. I love the story of Matthew. Let's go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew tells the story of his own conversion. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Our Lord sees Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom or the tax office. It says that Jesus went on from there, Matthew 9, 9. As he went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and Matthew followed him. See, there was a point in Matthew's life when greed mastered Matthew. Get rich, money was the answer to all life's problems. His priorities were all messed up. But Jesus saw in Matthew, get this, Jesus saw in Matthew. I mean, this guy had a messed up life. He was greedy. At one time he was greedy. He was changing, see? But he had messed up priorities. And Jesus saw the possibilities in this guy, Matthew. And so he called him to be his disciples. And from that point on, here's the big deal. From that point on, Matthew could see Jesus model the life he wanted him to live, and Jesus had the opportunity to speak into that man's life. But he did accept Matthew, see, and that's how we change people. Listen, if you're a believer, you know that nobody comes into your life that's not part of God's plan. Every person in your life fits into God's plan in some way or another, man. You've got to tell yourself that. Every person, tell yourself, you say, self, every person, that person I'm having a hard time with, that person is in my life. And he fits into my life by God's design for a reason and for a purpose. And see, folks, when, when people come into my life, I know I have to accept those people because that's what Christ did for me. I mean, he took, as we say, the whole ball of wax. He accepted the whole deal of Dennis Rasper when he, when he died for me and called me to be his own. But he did not say, okay, you're my own child. Now, I accept you. Go out and live like you please, and I'll just tolerate everything according to the new tolerance. He didn't do that. What did, what did Jesus Christ do? He put his Holy Spirit in me. Once he accepted me as his own, he put his Holy Spirit in me, right? And then he began to change me slowly, slowly, but surely. He began to change me, but he he accepted me as I am, and he started with me right where I was. And Paul ran into a bunch of people who were worshiping non-gods. They believe this God and this God and this God. They're all ways to heaven, cover all the bases, you know, make a statue to an unknown God. And then Paul met them where they were. And he said, I see the statue of it to an unknown God. He says, I know that God, and I'd like to tell you folks about him. And then in Acts chapter 17, when this whole story ends, in Acts chapter 17, and this is verse 34, it says, a few men became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. So this guy Dionysius, who has the name for, he's, he's named after the god of pleasure, and he's a member of this elite think tank group called the Areopagus, and he receives the truth and receives Christ as Savior, and Paul just made a great gain. And a few people came to know the Lord, just a few, see, but he was making some headway. He began with a few, but hearts and lives were beginning to change. Jesus met Matthew where he was, and Matthew changed. See, we're talking about this whole lie of accept the person, accept their belief system and lifestyle, even if what they believe is destructive and damning and their lifestyle is miserable. And the Bible's rule is, if God brings them into your life, if God brings them into some kind of relationship with you, we accept them. We realize we're sinners. We don't condemn them, but we do judge them. Of course you judge them. You have to judge them. If what they believe and the way they're living is out of step with the Word of God, you need to say, this is wrong. And I don't condemn you because I have my own sins, but you need to say, this is still wrong. And as I build into people's lives, I need to address those issues. See, that person is in my life for a reason, and they're in my life for a reason, but... Um, 
I know this, I am in their life for a reason, just as much as they're in my life for a reason. And I think back to this couple, Kurt and Rhea, and I can tell you their name because they live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming now. And they'd been living together for about a year, and they were getting married after a year, and their lifestyle was definitely out of sync with God's Word. And I got to know these people. I met with them a couple of times, and I found out about their lives. And then I told them, I said, Kurt and Rhea, I need to tell you what God says. I, I explained to them what God says about sex and how sacred it is. And I, I, I explained to them what God says about sex before marriage. I explained all that. And then I challenged them. I said to Kurt and Rhea, I said, why don't you try this until you get married? I say, hands off. No sex, no sleeping together for a month until you get married, see? And... Um, and I also said to him, I said, you need to repent before God. I said, this is a sin. I just showed you in God's word, it's a sin. And you need to repent before God and ask God to forgive you for sleeping together before marriage and, um, and, and, and come to God through his son, Jesus Christ, and the Father in heaven will forgive you. And then I said, take the next step and ask him to bless your marriage and make it the best marriage on earth. Well, I didn't hear from him for a few days, but man, they came back and they said, okay, we committed ourselves to not sleeping together. We committed ourselves that we're going to do this and, and we're going to ask God. You know, they just, I mean, they just, there was kind of a turnaround and they were so, so grateful that I had talked to them like that. But I got to tell you this, not everybody, everybody reacts like that. Most people don't. Most people don't. Most people get offended. But then you got to go back to Acts 17, 34, and you got to look at what Paul said. He said, um, or what the Word of God says about Paul. And a few men became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus. And sometimes that's how you have to change the world. One heart, one person at a time, see? But part of our calling as people who profess faith in Jesus Christ is to accept people like Jesus accepted us. I mean, that's what tolerance is, accepting people, loving people. But when you know their thinking and their living is destructive, you don't tolerate that. you got to deal with it. And there are books on confrontation. There's books and books and books on confrontation. I just have four quick points here, okay, on how to confront. These are all, these are all, these are all scripture-based. They're backed up in scripture. Number one is you pray first. Whenever you have to confront somebody, you pray first. Maybe you're, maybe you're talking to one person and you see, man, are they messed up or is their lifestyle messed up? And you know you have to address this issue right away. You still pray. You still pray. You go to the Father. You, say, you just say a mind prayer. And I say, Father, give me the words and give me love. Second rule of confrontation, if you're looking forward to confronting this thing, then you never do that. You never, never, that, that's just a cardinal rule, man. You never do it. There's always, always got to be some apprehension about dealing with this. Thirdly, and this is just leadership books, when you know you need to address it, do it within 24 hours, or I guarantee you, you won't. You'll find excuses not to. And fourth, folks, be firm. And this is the tough part. You got to be firm and let these people know you care and you really want their best. See, we're thinking about the devil's lie that Jesus is just one of many ways to God, whoever God is. I mean, most ideas of God aren't even drawn from his word. And we're dealing with the lie that goes beyond that, and that's that tolerance is the greatest good. Intolerance is the greatest evil, so just accept everybody's belief system and lifestyle. You know, don't offend anybody. Be, be, be politically correct. And these are all the lies and here is the Bible's truth. Accept the people God brings into your life. Judge them when they're out of step with God's word, because here's your standard. And don't condemn them and be a change agent in the right way. Just, just one more comment, because I love the way that Jesus approached Matthew. He was greedy from the word go, but Jesus saw potential in Matthew. 
Yeah, he saw Matthew, the tax collector, at one time in his life saying, two for the Roman, or one for the Roman government, two for me, one for the government, two for me. He saw that, but this is so important. He also saw what Matthew could be. And that's how I have to see the people that God puts in my life. I have to see, I have to see their potential. I have to see what they can be. Because I, I have the word of God. I've got something important to give these people. And I don't have to accept their wrong beliefs because the culture says so. Or say, or say you know, you're like, or, or you, your lifestyle is your choice. Because if God says it's wrong, I need to stand by that. But I need to see them like God sees them and me. I've got to see where they can be. And I've got to see that I can be part of that whole deal to take them where they can be, to reshape their thinking and redirect their living. Folks, I see myself like that. I see God bringing people into my life for a reason. I'm part of, I'm part of his plan. I'm part of his plan for that person. And I pray this is you. When I see changes in people, because God used me, when I see changes in people, that, I tell you what, in the ministry, more than anything, that and people coming to Christ, when I see people change, that lights my fire more than anything else. That gives me the joy beyond joy. And so here's the challenge. Seriously think about the people that you have an attitude about. Look at Jesus and how he does with Matthew. I mean, Jesus could have said to Matthew, walking by that tax office, hey, look at that loser. Boy, there's a loser if there ever was one. Now, what happened to Matthew? He went to Northern Africa. He infected literally thousands upon thousands of people with the gospel. He died by crucifixion. But before he died by crucifixion, man, many, 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 many people came to know the Lord. He changed one life after another. Why? Because Jesus saw where he could be. He saw the potential in him. He saw what Matthew could be. So think about that person you have an attitude about. Where does God want to take him? See him as the Lord Jesus Christ sees him. Think About It is sponsored by Real Life Christian Church. Real Life Christian Church meets in Endeavor Middle School, 22505 26 Mile Road, just west of North Avenue in Ray, Michigan. Sunday service starts at 10 a.m. Visit us on the web at rlcc.us. Never miss a single message from Pastor Rasper. Just go to faithtalk1500.com and download the Real Life Podcast. And until next week, may God's Word do a work in you. Real Life Christian Church. Get real.